Well, this summer we've been asking the question, what does it look like to be a good neighbor in our new neighborhood? And one of the passages that we've spent some time in is Jeremiah 29.7, where the children of Israel are living in exile in Babylon, and they don't like their neighborhood. They want to go home. And God says, seek the peace or the shalom of the city. The Hebrew word for shalom is this big idea of flourishing, fullness, of a people becoming everything they were meant to be, of harmony with God, with the earth, with one another. When we love a neighborhood well, the neighborhood experiences shalom. So one of the things I'd like to ask tonight as we're coming near the end of our series on uh, neighboring is what what might a neighborhood look like when it experiences God's shalom? Uh, uh, if, if it were faithful and God blesses over the next 20 years or whatever, in small ways, what, what might we see occurring? What does it look like when God's peace comes to a neighborhood? And Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, is a vision of what a neighborhood looks like when God's peace comes to it. Isaiah was an urban prophet. His own city, Jerusalem, had been destroyed. And the, the chapters before this show us that uh, the people of Israel are suffering, they're, they're worshiping idols, they're far from God, and God corrects them, and then he gives them some hope of what he wants to do in the world. And in verse 17, he says, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And so he comforts these people, these exiles who are living in a ruined city by reminding them of a vision of the kind of city he's going to build someday. And he offers six marks of a neighborhood enjoying shalom. But before we... Uh, look at those marks. I just wanted to step back for a second and talk about how do you read a passage like this? I've been preaching this passage for many years in many different places, and often there's two questions that come up, and I just wanted to touch on them real quickly. The first question is, uh, now wait a minute, this was a prophecy to exiles um, living in physical Jerusalem. Why would you apply it to us today? Is that fair to apply this to us today? Well, that's a very, very good question. Um, these people were living in a real city, a real Jerusalem. But notice that God, he says, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. So there's this, there's this interesting thing going on where he's talking about the real Jerusalem where they're living, but he's also looking forward to a future heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, biblical prophecies are like the Smoky Mountains. You, you look out at the Smokies and you can't tell any depth perception. All the mountains look like they're right next to each other, but there's actually a lot of miles between them. The biblical prophets were the same, is that they'd look into the future and they, they could see what was going to happen, but they couldn't see the time between it all. So you've got that going on here. The, the prophet's looking at like a mountain range of prophecy he sees something happening in Jerusalem, and it actually was rebuilt, but then he sees this new, this heavenly Jerusalem on the other side of it. And so what that tells us is that a passage like this is what the world is supposed to look like. It's what 
God's future is. It's what God dreams of for all humanity and for the planet. And Jesus says, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if this is what God is doing in the world, it makes sense that we work towards it here in this life. Now the second question is, is a little more technical and it says, hey D Doug, this, this, uh, I preached this once in a church and the pastor kindly came up afterward and said this to me. He said, you know I so appreciate you being here and often you'll know you're in trouble when that's, <laughs> you kind of hear the inflection go down at the end of it. And he said, but I'm sorry, I don't think this passage has anything to do with the world we live in today. And then we got into a good discussion. Uh, my friend, that pastor, comes out of a, a, a theological framework known as dispensationalism. We won't describe all of that um, tonight, but it's a particular uh, way of looking at eschatology, which is the doctrine of future things, that says that there's going to be a rapture and then a millennial kingdom and, and that Jesus will come at the end of the millennial kingdom. And my friend put this passage in the millennial kingdom and said, we have no business to hope that any of this happens in this life. And a lot of good folks believe that. If those of you of a certain age will remember the Left Behind series, those of us who are really old like me will remember the late great planet Earth. And so these are uh, uh, frameworks that many Christians believe. That was the first seminary I went to. That was how we were trained to think about the world. I've changed my understanding of that respecting of course people who disagree and here's why when Jesus comes what does he talk about kingdom of God and when Jesus tries to illustrate the kingdom of God his favorite book is Isaiah the prophets of Isaiah and so he's always going back to passages like this one to say when the kingdom of God comes it's going to look kind of like this now here's where it gets kind of confusing Sometimes Jesus says, and the kingdom of God's already here. Sometimes Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not yet here, it's future. And so you have to hold in tension this already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. It's very confusing sometimes. And so what that means is, is that Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God he said the kingdom of God is broken in. This passage we're about to look like, this, this vision has started to, to be at work in the world, but it's not fully going to be here until the end of time. And so we, we hold that eschatology intention, already not yet, that the kingdom of God is broken in, but it's not yet fully here. And so the passage that we're looking at now, it, it says that some of this can happen now, but the fullness won't be till complete until the end of time. So that's, that's why I think this passage does apply. If you're interested in, in uh, this kind of thing, I'd recommend the book by George Eldon Ladd called The Gospel of the Kingdom. It's a study of the, the kingdom of God in the New Testament. So six marks of a redeemed city. The first one is joy, verses 18 to 19. Be glad, rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. So when God brings peace to a city, one of the marks is the city experiences joy. Um, there, there's just there's great 
parks and, and people are having parties and dance companies and good restaurants and concerts and plays and art on walls and football games and they tip street musicians and eat ice cream. There's, it's just part of God's presence brings joy. So one of the marks of a neighborhood experiencing shalom is joy. Verse 20, the second mark of this neighborhood enjoying shalom is health. It's healthy. Verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. The young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So this is like a poem. He's using metaphorical language. He says, you know, there's going to come a day when babies don't die anymore and everybody lives to be 100. I mean, it's, it's a metaphor. He's saying health is one of the marks of God's presence. That's why Jesus heals, because healing is a mark of the presence of the kingdom of God. So he's describing a neighborhood where people are coming into the healing that God has for them, where there's health. Practically, I think that would mean that you could see a doctor, you could get mental health care, that the churches would be praying for the sick, uh, that there'd be uh, no food deserts and, and adequate resources to, to eat. Third mark of a city enjoying God's shalom, verse 21, economic vitality. They shall build houses and inhabit them, they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, the days of my people will be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. In the ancient Near East, most people didn't, well nobody went to the office to work. Your economy was your backyard, your farm, your vineyard. Uh, that part of the world was constantly being run over by armies. You'd spend all your life investing in your vineyard. An army would come through, destroy it, and you'd be destitute. And it had just happened. And so God says, I tell you what, when, when, when things are really working, like I want them to work, when my kingdom is here, when people are functioning the way they're supposed to be functioning, let me tell you what it's going to be like. Everybody's going to be able to provide for themselves. Everybody's going to be able to, to, to keep the things that they work for and grow. It's a powerful picture of a neighborhood enjoying shalom. There's economic vitality. Then verse 23, fourth mark, justice. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. There'll be no children born for calamity or disaster. The idea is that uh, everybody in a community, everybody in a neighborhood enjoying God's shalom has a kind of an opportunity to become whatever God created them to be. Uh, they're not cursed just because of uh, what school system they were born into or what family they were born into. Everybody has an equal opportunity to thrive. Verse 24, fifth mark of a city enjoying God's shalom, faith. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. 
So when God brings his peace to a community, there's spiritual renewal. There's an awakening of faith. People begin a relationship with God or return to God. They worship God. The communities of God are flourishing. That's one of the marks of a neighborhood enjoying God's shalom. And then lastly, safety. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall grace together. In other words, Crips and Bloods, don't shoot each other. Uh, you don't have school board meetings where half the community is screaming at the other half of the community. You, we, we work through our differences. We love each other. There's unity. People feel safe in their homes and in their streets. So if we love our neighborhood well, uh, our neighborhood ought to have just a little bit more joy because we're here. Uh, our neighborhood ought to have uh, maybe just be a little bit healthier because we're here. Our neighborhood ought to be moving towards a flourishing economy because we're here. Our neighborhood ought to have fewer children born for calamity because we're here. Our neighborhood ought to have more people coming to know and love and follow Jesus because we're here. Our neighborhood ought to be just a little bit safer because we're here. So a couple questions to kind of wrap up with. What do I do with this vision? What's, what's my response? We, we can't do everything. And so if, if you're drawn to this church and you're drawn to this vision, uh, one of the things that I think we, we do is we ask, well, what's the piece of it that I'm called to be a part of? What shalom gap am I called to, to focus on? And so maybe, maybe you awaken joy through your art, like Alyssa Coffin. Or maybe you increase health by uh, starting uh, an urban garden or working on a food desert like Robert Hodge has done. Or maybe uh, you mentor youth looking for jobs like Bruce Charles does at the Change Center. Or maybe you advocate for more just systems and policies like Tommy Smith does on the city council. Or maybe you pray regularly in our chapel for spiritual renewal and opportunities to share the gospel like our dear Monday night prayer folks have done so faithfully for years. Or maybe you work for reconciliation like Linda Hamilton is doing. This can get really overwhelming and you remember, we say this often, a need does not constitute a call. A need does not constitute a call. A need does not constitute a call. <laughs> you will not last if you try to meet every need that's, that's around here. But I would say, if this is part of your church family, what shalom gap are you going to be uh, a, a part of? A lot of different ways to answer that, but find one, one little piece, kind of like Rob uh, and Heather have done. Second question, how do you sustain hope when you work for God's peace in your neighborhood or your city when sometimes it feels like you're losing the battle? You know, last week we uh, had just a wonderful panel with several of our teachers talking about the needs in the city. And one of the things that I think a lot of people were feeling as the summer had gone on was, gosh, there's been a break, there's been some healing 
uh, since the, the, all the shootings at AE and then, um, you know, went up to Hannah after and said, great job, thanks so much for sharing. She was at AE last year through all of the shootings and she said, through her mask, another child died this morning. And you probably heard about that by now. There was a, a, a murder Sunday morning of a senior at Austin East, John John. Uh, and, and if you, like, like Rob so powerfully illustrated, if you take these kind of things seriously, if they're not just kind of footnotes in the paper, but they're actually your neighbors that are getting gunned down and, and, and you care about it, you can start to despair. Uh, you, you can just really become overwhelmed. Well, I think the there's two things that we can do to help us sustain hope. And one is get our eschatology right. <laughs> that sounds like a dry, dusty theological term, but I really mean this. And generally, I think the church has made two mistakes with our eschatology. At the beginning of the 1900s, it was, uh, you know, the kingdom of God's all, we can do it now. It's going to come in now. We've got the resources this is going to be, have you ever heard of a magazine called The Christian Century? That's where it came from because everybody thought, you know, we got it. We can do it. It's going to happen now. We can solve all the problems. Uh, 20th century didn't go so well. <laughs> you know, people are kind of questioning whether that's true. The other mistake you make with eschatology is uh, this whole thing is doomed. It's damned. It's horrible. The only thing that matters is saving souls. Anything else is uh, shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. I think Evangelist Moody called it that. That's the other extreme, is that nothing here matters, and let's just hold on and beat me up, Scotty. That's not that we believe There's a tension that we have to hold. Have you noticed that in the Christian life? It's almost never either or. It's almost never the Somehow it's holding up the tension. It's so hard. But the tension is already not yet. So don't expect too much. You're not going to save Beaumont. But don't expect nothing. The kingdom of God is broken in in a meaningful way. Beaumont is somehow different because the glasses are there. Well, also, this question of how do we sustain hope when the battle just feels like it's being lost? We've got to remember who's ultimately responsible. Back in verse 17, God says, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Um, that's an interesting Hebrew word. It's barah. It's only used of God, and mostly in Genesis 1. The only being in the Bible that barah is God. He is the only one that can ultimately do the things that we're looking at in this passage tonight. And the last thing I think we can do is abide and go. If you've been around here for a little bit, a couple of months ago, we had a series called Abide and Go. And again, it's a tension. If a church is all about abiding, it's not faithful. If a church is all about going, it's not faithful. It's abide and go. The only way we can faithfully go into the world and seek its peace is to first abide in God's presence and be renewed like we sang and prayed in our songs tonight. They both got to go together. 
And if you are starting to feel burned out and hopeless, that's a warning sign that you're doing too much going and not enough abiding. So pull back. Work on that contemplative life. Work on your prayer life. Get into the scriptures. Get into a small group. If your faith feels kind of narrow and empty and solipsistic and narrow-minded and navel-gazing, you may be doing too much abiding and not enough going. I think it was John Piper said that God didn't give us uh, walk, walking talkies on the beach to a military man so that he could order martinis from the beach club. The reason why you give a military person a walkie-talkie is so that they can call in assistance as they get involved in whatever they're getting involved in. Same way prayer and spiritual life. It's not just there so that I feel comfortable and rosy. It's there to help me discern how I go. And if your faith has no going, your prayer will have very little power. So there's this tension again. Abide and go. Let's go to the table. Lord, we, uh, we would love to see this little neighborhood just taste a little bit more peace because you put us here. Yes, this is